Friends, let us go to God in prayer. Gracious God, we do indeed give you thanks for the gift of music and for the gift of those who bring it to us. We ask your blessing upon this time as we reflect on your word for us and on our lives. Amen. Recently, while sitting around a table with some friends at the end of a meal, unprompted and not really in response to anything anyone else at the table was saying, a friend of mine looking down at the empty tablecloth in front of him, slightly nervously touching the fabric napkin, simply said, I've never been comfortable with prayer. He continued, with praying aloud, especially, he said, and, and especially with, with other people. There, there was almost a sense of relief as he kind of exhaled it, but also awaiting to see what was going to happen. Was someone, was I going to judge him or say something? And, and our other companion at the table, he said, oh, same thing with me, same with me. And he looked over at me and he says, that's why we've got him here. You must always get asked to pray, he said, you're in the business. And I laughed a little bit, and I responded, I do, you're right, I do. But usually when I'm asked to pray, I'll defer to someone else, someone else at the table. Or if I'm asked before a meal to pray, I'll sometimes walk around and look for someone else to ask. So I'll, I'll take responsibility for the prayer, but I may not be the one to do it. So I, I said, yeah, I do. But then I usually defer to someone else. I invite someone else to pray. And and he looked at me a little bit surprised. He didn't say it, but I knew he was thinking, but that's your job. But he didn't say it. He just looked at me, a little puzzled. After a bit of awkward silence, I said, that's not my job. And we continued to talk a little bit more about how I see the role of a pastor as being one to shepherd, to guide, to equip others to do these these things. And, And I talked a little bit also about how I know this differs from many other traditions. There are many traditions where the actions of the clergy, the prayers of the clergy, are treated differently or or deferred to a little bit more in terms of things like prayer or preaching and teaching. Like there's, there's something more in the prayers of the pastor. And so I, I looked back at that first man, the one who said he wasn't comfortable praying, and I told him a few stories of other people I've known who've struggled with this. I, I recognized that this is a common thing. And then I also shared my own experiences of feeling apprehensive about praying in various settings. We talked a little bit about the ways that I've encouraged others to find ways to pray, to learn how to pray. We talked about uh, when I worked with our PCWS leaders a couple years ago and, and taught some ways to pray so that, that they could be leading others in prayer. I shared about our midday prayer sessions during the first year, especially of the pandemic, where folks learned a variety of methods and approach to prayer in ways that could be both very personal and individual, but also communal. We talked a lot about developing a prayer life and that it takes work, it takes effort. 
And I think for the past three and a half years, if there's, there's been something I've continually talked about or consistently talked about, it's, it's trying to invite us to be people of prayer. We've done it through adult education sessions on using psalms as prayer devices. We've had workshops on preparing written prayers. We, we had our Stephen ministers who have been offering to pray with others on a weekly basis and to meet with others before church to pray. And again, with church leaders, I've used prayer tools and ways to teach. So I haven't hid the ball here, folks. I have not hidden from you my strong conviction that prayer is an essential part of an enriched experience of God. For many of you, I know prayer is already and has been a huge part of your life. For some of you, since childhood. Or perhaps a moment or a period in your life where you were compelled to simply get on your knees and go before God in the midst maybe of some time of struggle or difficulty. Many of you have earnestly prayed for people and concerns on our prayer list and for other concerns in the world and in the lives of people you know. Often we pray when we simply don't know what else to do. In, in some instances, prayer or, or the idea of prayer can be a filler almost, a substitute for wanting to be really, really clear that we care. Do you know what I mean? We'll say, I'll be praying for you. When really what we're saying is, I really care a lot about you. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all because loving people and caring for people is important. And in that context, Even just the invocation of the word prayer can be something of an encourager or a way of communicating encouragement to others. But prayer is something more than this. Prayer is something more than an expression of love between people. It's something more even than the often typical expression of a desire, a desired outcome to uh, to an unseen divine being. What I mean by that is is prayer is more than just asking for what we want. At some point, prayer, the focus of prayer, especially in our modern church realm, became almost exclusively about asking God to do things that we desire. And a little bit less, a little bit less about being tuned in or attuned to God's presence. God's presence even when we don't get what we want. Or maybe even especially, especially when we don't. And and God's presence when we can't seem to feel God's presence. Or we might desire more of God's presence to be known to us and to others. Prayer, at its foundational level, is recognizing that we are in the divine presence. It's listening for God, looking for God, experiencing God. Professor Andrew Root has written extensively about about prayer in the life of the Christian, and specifically the role that pastors play in both living lives of prayer and inviting others to do the same. In introducing his observation about prayer, Root summarizes the scientific research of psychologist Daniel Simons, who's at the University of Illinois in the area of visual cognition. And I wonder if you've heard of him at all. You may recognize this study. He's best known for a famous experiment in the area of what he calls attention blindness. 
you can find a video about this experiment on YouTube, and it's popularly called The Invisible Gorilla. This is Root's summary of, of the research. The idea behind the experiment is simple. People tend to think, especially or particularly in this secular age, that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. We've, we've heard that phrase. We've maybe even said it. For instance, in this example, you'd assume that if you were watching people walking in a circle, passing a basketball, you'd think that you would notice if some person in a gorilla suit randomly walked through the scene, right? Waving his arms up and down and jumping. That wouldn't be possible to miss. Yet half the participants in Simon's experiment miss it. People assume at rates of over 90% that they are not the kind of people to miss such an obvious right-in-front-of-your-face event, and yet 50% do. The experiment shows that if people are looking for a gorilla, they see a gorilla. But if your attention is elsewhere, for instance, on counting the number of times the basketball is passed, at least half will miss the interloping gorilla. And that's just how Simon's experiment is set up. Two groups of people, some in white shirts, some in black, pass a basketball between them as they move. The observer is asked to count how many times the people in the white shirts touch the ball. Seconds into the sequence, the gorilla comes walking through. Afterward, half the observers are shocked when, they, when they're asked if they saw a gorilla. Now, I did this for myself once, and uh, I didn't see the gorilla. And I was shocked, and I watched it again, and there was this gorilla. Most of the people, like me, assume that there was no such thing, and that those who saw a gorilla are either liars or crazy. Simon's point is clear. Perceptions of reality are contingent on our mode of attention. Let me say that again. Perceptions of reality are contingent on our mode of attention. We are prepared to focus, what we are prepared to focus on, what we are prepared to focus on determines what we see. Root goes on to say that deep-seated assumptions about how to conceive and represent the world, what uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls social imaginaries, inform and frame what we give our attention to. We can and do miss hugely obvious realities when our attention is on something else. In his book, A Secular Age, Taylor argues that in the modern era, our attention has been drawn away from what our ancestors thought was obvious, that a personal God acts and moves in the world. Some would say this movement presents liberation. We've put aside an untenable belief. But Taylor suggests that we've acquired a unique observation blindness. It's not that we've given up an untenable belief, but that new imaginaries have drawn our attention away from divine action and towards something else. New forms of attention make us unable to see what was once obvious. Essentially, we've become distracted. Our lives are filled with things that make it difficult to see and recognize God all around us. 
in part because we're so focused on these other things, the worries of the day, the anxieties of war or illness or financial insecurity. We're, we're so focused on the details of our jobs and our household and our family or even the details of seemingly mundane things, whatever they are, good and valuable things, important things, whatever they might be. They've given us this observational blindness where we're less tuned to see God's movement in the world around us, in our lives, God's movement in our lives and in our stories. When we pray, whether it is on our own or with others, we bring our stories before God. And and we seek to have and to see God revealed in those stories. Those stories of our lives, stories of our struggle, stories of our doubt, stories of our honest searching, stories of our identity. And when we pray, even when we can't see God in those stories, we tell them, we tell our stories, because they might be stories in which others prayerfully see God, and maybe where we even might be shown God in our stories through the words and prayers of others. It's easy to lose track of one particular detail in our reading this morning from Luke's Gospel that Condi read for us a few moments ago. It's a detail that is only in Luke's Gospel. It doesn't appear in Mark or Matthew's Gospels telling of this fantastic transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop. And it's a detail that's easy to lose because of that fantastic imagery. Our reading started with this sentence in verse 28. Luke writes, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and went up on the mountain to pray. They went to pray. They went away, they got away from all that they were doing, their busyness, they went up a mountain, a place set apart, and they went to pray. And while they're praying, in their time of praying, in their prayer and in their act of praying, they experience this wondrous sight, this wondrous sight of the appearance of Jesus changing to dazzling white and the appearance with him of Moses and Elijah and hearing the words of God. And friends, it is easy for us to get lost in this text. It's easy to get lost in this text and getting lost in it is not a bad thing because there is so much happening. There's a lifetime of lessons in it and there are more directions to take this text in than there are Transfiguration Sundays for the rest of my life. So I'm going to leave you a little bit unsatisfied if you're looking for me to explain everything there is to explain about all the imagery that's in this text. It's certainly not going to happen this morning, but if you do have questions from it, as always, I'd love to hear them and discuss this passage with you. There's a lot in it. But no matter how you analyze all of that imagery— and the scene that unfolds, and, and the new understanding that these disciples receive about Jesus and about God, no matter, no matter how you analyze it, what we see is that it's a turning point in all of the Gospels. It's a turning point in Luke's Gospel where God makes it clear to those disciples 
that Jesus is God's beloved child, that the disciples are to follow Jesus, and that Jesus is intimately connected to God's presence in the world throughout time, especially in the the lives of, of both Moses and Elijah. This happens when they go on the mountain to pray. This happens when they pray with Jesus. They're able to see, see things they couldn't see. They went up on the mountain to pray. They went up on the mountain to pray, and in their prayer, they experienced the revealing, the the unveiling, the, the pulling back of the confusion. They experienced the unavoidably present presence of God. And even though the the disciples are exhausted on this mountaintop, perhaps from the walk, perhaps seemingly from being in a nonstop ministry of Jesus, moment after moment, whatever causes it, we don't know. Luke writes, though, that they were weighed down with sleep. They were weighed down with sleep, but they stay awake. They stay awake because being in God's presence, being in God's presence in prayer in this moment— They are shook. They are shook. They are kept awake. They are awake. They are present. They are able to hear and to see what is happening around them. They go up to the mountain to pray, and in their prayer, they experience and they see God. Friends, this is why we pray. This is why the invitation to prayer is so important, because for us it is the same. As we seek to learn to pray, we are seeking God. We are shedding the distractions of the world, good distractions, and the not-as-good distractions. We are shedding them, and we are being more tuned to God's presence and to God's mingling with humanity mingling with us. When we pray, we are sitting with our grief, our joy, our concern, our worry, our questions, our wonderings, our doubts. We're sitting with all of who we are, and we're looking, we're watching, we're waiting, we're hoping for God's presence to be within those stories and to and to reveal God's presence within our stories. We do this when we're on our own. I originally said we do this when we're alone, but I don't think we're ever alone when we pray. But we do pray when we're on our own when we're not with other people around us. And to do that, we might need to change our surroundings. We don't always need to go up on a mountain, although I can tell you that sometimes I do need to do that, and I think mountains can be places where that distance, like the Celtic spiritual tradition says, where the distance between heaven and earth becomes a little bit more thin. You may know the thin places in the world where it can be easier to pray, but sometimes We need to make our own spaces easier to pray, to go to a different part of the house, maybe a chair we don't sit in very often, that one that the guests sit in. 
or a room that doesn't get used, or maybe we need to light a candle, change our lighting, play some music. We need to do something, go outside maybe, take a walk. You see, when we're praying alone or on our own, we sometimes need to find ways to make that easier, to remove the distractions. But I'm also pretty convinced that like those disciples walking up the mountain with Jesus, we need to find ways to pray with one another. As uncomfortable as it can be to share our concerns, to tell our stories, to bring ourselves to one another to be prayed with and prayed for and to pray for others and to watch and to wait for God's presence in the midst of all this all of our lives, all of our stories. Friends, we long for God. We seek God. But without prayer, we're going to miss the gorilla walking through the room. For God is all around us. God is all around us. Even when we think we're the furthest from God, God is all around us waiting to be seen and experienced by us. As a pastor, yes, my job is to be one who prays. But it's also to be one who invites us all, all of you, to be ones who pray. Pray with one another, pray for one another. Jesus is the one who teaches us to pray, taught us to pray, taught us to talk to God as our Father intimately. Jesus invited us into an intimate prayer relationship with God to bring our lives before God. And again, we do this in our individual lives, but also with one another, because that's what the journey is all about, seeking God, being open to seeing God in our lives being tuned to see God in our lives over and over again, actively looking for God with one another in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.